Welcome to Modern Sign Books. Our guest today is British-born author Andrew Grant, who has published several series of books featuring, including The Adventures of Royal Navy Intelligence Officer David Trevelyan, Birmingham, Alabama Detective Cooper Devereaux, and Paul McGrath, an Army veteran and intelligence agent who goes undercover as a janitor. But he is also the real-life brother of Jack Reacher author Lee Child, and today's topic is the new, newest Reacher novel, Better Off Dead which is the second Andrew has co-written with his brother as part of a transition to picking up the series himself. And in order to help that transition, he is using the pen name Andrew Child. And we are delighted to welcome Andrew Grant Child today. Well, thank you very much, Roger. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, before we get into the Better Off Data, you were born in Birmingham, England, and I understand you weren't always a writer, but you were always a storyteller. That's that's how I that's how I think of it. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Birmingham, England, all those years ago. Far cry from uh, from where I am now in the in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. But um, yeah, I was born in Birmingham. And we moved around a bit in the UK over the years because my dad's job kept moving. And um, I never, yeah, I never thought of myself as I never. If, if I looked ahead into the future, I never imagined a future with me as a as a writer. But right from being a little kid, when we would be driving around in the car, you know, back in the day when you didn't worry about seat belts and car seats and all that kind of stuff, you know, I would be standing on standing up behind the the front seats talking to my mum and dad, and I. I would just tell stories to pass the time on the journey. And um, they said years later, they said they always, I, I would always start off with something true, you know, something that had happened to me at school or playing with my friends or something like that. And there'd be a point where I'd say, and then suddenly, and they knew that's when I was diving off down the rabbit hole and I was just making the rest of it up. So uh, yeah, I just always loved telling stories. And I continued that through um, my time at school, at high school, at university. Well, even when I even when I had um, a job, you know, working in telecommunications, um, I feel kind of guilty looking back because um, we were a huge company and we looked after the business, you know, the, the, uh, some of the telecommunications requirements for business clients, you know, big corporations. And often things will go horribly wrong and I'd be sent in to, to talk to them and, and try to fix it. And really, I should have been mortified at how terribly things were going. But all I could think of was, wow, this is going to be a great story. Wait till I get back to the office and tell the fellow. <laughs> so it's interesting because after university, you got involved, you fell in love with theater and formed a troupe with some of your, your friends. But you didn't do the writing for the troupe. You did everything else, it sounds like. Yeah. I kind of did, actually. That was the strange thing, you know. And the, the, the reason I got pulled into theatre was um, I went to university to do English literature because it was my favourite. wasn't necessarily the thing <clears throat> that I was best at. Um, everyone at high school said that I should really do something like economics or politics or philosophy. But my heart was set on doing English literature, mainly because the English literature teachers we had at that high school was so good. I loved that class. It was one of the only classes I really looked forward to because they just encouraged you to think for yourself and you could express any opinion you wanted. You could have any view about whatever book or poem or play we were reading, as long as you could justify it. You know, it was no good just coming up with some nonsensical statement and, and leaving it at that. You had to be able to back it up. So I loved that. It was like an, it was like a real challenge. You know, what? How could you? What could you come up with? How could you stand your ground? 
around how could you justify it. And I thought the game, that if they did English literature at university, it would be the same, only kind of bigger and better. So I was really excited about going. But it turned out not to be the case at all, because instead of um, high school teachers, we had these professors who were kind of internationally published, renowned experts in their own fields. And a lot of them didn't take too kindly to some, you know, jumped up 18 year old coming up with their own ideas. So um, I really didn't do very well. And in fact, one teacher kicked me out of his class. He said, to, we were arguing over some, I think it was one of Shakespeare's plays. And um, he took offense at the, at the um, theory that I had. And he told me in no uncertain terms that he was the world's leading authority on this subject. <clears throat> and unless I apologized immediately, I had to leave and never come back. So I left and never went back. So I was having a really miserable time with the English literature. And the thing with university in the UK, certainly in those days, is a little more flexible now. But back then, you had to pick your major when you applied to university. So you had to apply to do English literature. You couldn't apply to the particular university you liked and then decide what you wanted to major in. And that meant if you wanted to change, it was very difficult. Um, if you wanted to make a, a massive change, you know, change from one department to another, you basically had to drop out and then restart the following year. And um, you know, my father in particular, you know, even if it was genuine and even if I'd wanted to do this for a fresh start in a different discipline, it would have, to him, it would have looked like failure and that just was not going to be acceptable. So the best I could do, the biggest change I could make was switch to doing a dual major with English literature and drama. So the drama was just absolutely fantastic because if you think about it, theatre is really the most direct way of telling a story. You know, you're not reading it for yourself. You're not interpreting the words on the page yourself. You have people standing in front of you, speaking the lines, acting out the action. So it's it really is, I thought, the best way of telling stories. And I loved it. And during that time, I did get involved with writing. We had to because it was required for the, for the course. But, um, you know, there was a little bit of friction, you know, sometimes Sometimes, you know, you had young, enthusiastic people who are very opinionated, not always um, getting on, you know, too, too smoothly with the writing process. So at the end of the end of the degree, um, there were six of us and we felt, you know, we um, we had loved the course, but there were so many things that we'd started. You know, it's like you're walking down a corridor and you were pushing open doors and looking inside and the rooms look wonderful, but you didn't really have time to explore them because you just had to do the exam and then move on to the next one. So we said, before we get bogged down with all of that, um, nine to five, you know, all mortgages and all of that kind of stuff, why don't we set up our own company then we can explore our own material, we can do whatever we want and um, kind of get that out of our systems before we go to the real world. So that's what we did. <clears throat> but, you know, there were six of us and we kind of felt it made sense to play to our strengths. And um, the other, there were two or three people who were really good at sitting down together and writing. There were people that were really good at doing the set. Doing I, So the things that I tended to do be good at that other people didn't particularly want to do would be the the lighting the sound the production work lining up the venues for performances setting up the tours that we did liaising we went to the edinburgh festival for example so liaising with the festival organizers so um the only writing i really did i guess looking back was things like um 
Edinburgh Festival had a program, you know, and you had to have a little, you know, one paragraph mm -hmm. about your play that was designed out of all of the hundreds, if not thousands of plays to try to catch people's attention and, and make them interested in seeing it. So I would write those, for example, you know, almost like advertising copy for the, for the show rather than the actual show itself. So that's really the only writing I did in, in that period of time. I was I was much more, I, I was involved in the rest of the process, but ironically now, not so much the writing. <laughs> Were you a performer as well? Well, not not if I could help it. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I was absolutely terrible at acting, and there were one or two times in in the while we were still doing the degree where you had to act. It was required as part of the part of the um, assessment. So I did when I had to. But for me, the acting was very much like playing football, you know, soccer. You know, in my mind, I could see exactly what I wanted my body to do. I could hear what I wanted my voice to do. You know, in football, I could imagine where I wanted the ball to go when I kicked it. Problem was, when I set foot on a stage or on a football field, nothing would work. I couldn't do, you know, I, I, the, the gap between what I was capable of, of, of actually delivering and um, the, the vision that I wanted in my mind was so vast that it was, it was really frustrating. So um, I, I was an absolutely awful actor and I tried to avoid it at all costs. But once or twice I was forced into it. Uh, well, during the time that you were running around the country for the telecommunications company. I understand you had a lot of time reading in hotel rooms alone at night, no internet to play with at the time. Uh, who, who, what authors did you turn to at that point? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that looking back, you know, you never know what part different pieces of your life are going to play. You know, if you think of your life as a jigsaw puzzle, you don't know which parts are going to form which pieces and how important they're going to be. And so the, the process that I went through when I first started in telecoms was looking back really important because I wasn't able to go to the theatre as much as I wanted to. You know, either I would buy tickets for a play that I really wanted to see and then I couldn't go because I was on the road or I wouldn't buy the tickets because I thought I'd be on the road and of course it would turn out I wasn't and by then it was too late because it was sold out so yeah just just without meaning to without it being a conscious decision I found myself just reading more and more um you know in that that period of time I like to go on vacation to Greece every summer and I would take basically a suitcase that was had a couple of pairs of swimming trunks some sun cream and um the rest of it was books and one day I think it was actually when I was on one of these vacations and I was thinking all right what which what shall I read next and I opened my suitcase and I saw them all kind of set out there it occurred to me again without meaning to without it being a conscious decision uh, i just gravitated towards at that time mainly kind of cold war spy fiction you know i loved reading for example len dayton he was just absolutely tremendous and of course he had his cold war spy you know he had his famous three trilogies so nine books and then a tenth book which kind of was the entire arc of the other three trilogies from a different perspective. Unbelievably good. I just loved it. And um, from there into into lots of crime fiction and um, without meaning to, without, without it being a deliberate choice, because I would just love nothing more than to go to a bookshop and just, I, I generally wouldn't go to the bookshop thinking, oh, today I want to buy X. I would just go thinking, oh, I want to buy some books. And I would go and I would wander around and it might be fiction, it might be nonfiction, it might be history, it might anything, just anything that caught my fancy, I would buy and read. So um, yeah, it was just something that uh, sometimes you don't, when you're moving 
moving forwards, you don't see the pattern. It's only when you stop and look back that you that you can notice it. And yeah, there was a point when I realized, yeah, it seems like crime fiction, spy fiction, those are the things that seem to attract me. Was there a particular event or a series of events that led you to actually pick up and start writing? Well, you know, there was actually. Um, it took quite a long time from this particular event to me quitting my job and becoming a writer. It took a long time to get to that point, but I can absolutely trace back to the moment when the itch set in that I had to scratch. And that was when I was reading um, I was reading a, a, a crime fiction novel, and um, it was so fabulous at the beginning, absolutely brilliant. Loved it. It was one of those books where if you were sitting on a train, you'd miss your stop. If you were the same, if you were on a bus, you know, if you were at home, you would stay up all night. It was one of those kind of books. And I just could not wait to get to the end to see what was happening. But the end was awful. I thought, I thought so anyway. I thought it was a massive letdown. And I found myself thinking, well, why did the author finish it that way? Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he have this character do that? There was this theme earlier on. Why did he not follow up on that? All of these questions came into my head. And um, that was really the beginning of it for me because I, I, I couldn't wait to see if I could answer those kind of questions for myself in, in something that I wrote myself. So I went through this long process then of um, trying to get get out of the, the company that I was working for and, and just see if I could make it work. And I went through a couple of phases actually, because initially I thought to myself, you know, it's the kind of company where, well, first of all, actually, sorry, step one, step back. The first thing I thought was I'll be, I thought I could be really smart and I thought I could write the book in my spare time, my first book in my spare time while I was working. So I was still getting paid. And then um, there'd be no risk because if I didn't manage to write the book, if it was no good, if I couldn't get an agent or anything, then I just would just keep working and keep getting paid. But it didn't work. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the. I couldn't do the, the enough writing in my spare time to to build the momentum I needed to get to the end of the book. I kept being on the road for a week, and by the time I got home, I couldn't remember what the characters were doing or why they were doing it or what was going on. So I, I was spinning my wheels so much that I thought, no, um, either I give up or I'm going to have to just quit my job and do it full time. So then I thought, yeah, full-time is the way to go. And the company I was working for, it was huge, and they were downsizing, and they were giving people in most of the divisions um, really generous severance packages to leave. So I thought, this is fantastic. You know, you can either get paid to work, or you can get paid not to work. You know, it was, it was pretty obvious which one I wanted. But the trouble was, the division I was in was the only one in the company that was doing relatively well at the time, so they weren't giving severance packages. If you wanted to leave, Leave, you just had to walk away. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk away with nothing while all my friends in these other divisions are walking away with, with, um, with bags full of cash. So I tried to transfer to another part and they wouldn't let me. Then I tried, then I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll just be such a nuisance. I'll, I'll be so annoying that they'll, they'll see the, the error of their ways and they'll give me some money to shut me up, basically. But it actually worked the opposite way around for a while because we would be called into these meetings and the big wigs would come down from London 
and they would, you know, pose these questions, these terrible dilemmas the company was facing. So I would come up with the stupidest, most ridiculous, most outlandish, most impractical ideas just to make a nuisance of myself. But these fellows loved it. They lapped it up. And I was temporarily really successful. I got promoted. At one point, they even gave me stock options. It was ridiculous. Um, but then after a while, probably because of the ideas that I put forward being so stupid, the, that division started struggling too. So then they introduced severance packages and um, I was able to get one and leave. Um, and that kind of introduced me to a kind of psychological thing that you see, I think, with a lot of authors. It's just, you know, we're awful. We can never, we're never happy because um, all of those years I've wanted to leave and they wouldn't let me. Then they said I could leave. And I was like, what, just like that? You're not gonna, you're not gonna say, no, please, Andrew, stay, we need you. You know, there was none of that. There was just, yeah, okay, we'll leave your keys and see ya. Uh, it's a bit like if an author walks into a bookstore, you know, either they have your books or they don't. And if, you, if they have your books, you think, this is terrible, nobody's bought my books. And if they don't have them, <laughs> then you think, this is terrible, why haven't I got my book? So whatever happens, you know, we're awful. You can never keep us happy, but, um, that's how I came to leave that company. Um, and I left with a severance package, which I figured I could eke out for, um, for 12 months or so to, um, to give me a cushion um, while I got my, got my teeth into writing that first book. And um, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a rocky transition. I, I was maybe naive. I thought, you know, I can leave the corporate world on Friday and I can be, fully, uh, I can be a fully-fledged author on Monday. And it took a little bit longer to change mental gears than, than I'd hoped, but um, I did manage to get the book done within that timescale. So, um, you know, things, things work themselves out in the end. I think one of the things that's worked out very well for you was a lady you met at a, a convention that turned out to be your wife. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. That was the best part of, uh, again, a completely unforeseen, unpredictable um, event. But uh, yeah, um, that that was that was quite something. That was yeah, that was the biggest life changing part of uh, of uh, you know a spin off from being an author was was uh, yeah meeting my wife, which uh, obviously has worked out wonderfully from my point of view. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, she was a uh, published author herself at the time, as you both were. Uh, Tasha Alexander, after uh, uh, she writes a series character, Lady Emily, set in the end of the 19th, early 20th century. And uh, I believe the most recent title is The Dark Heart of Florence, meaning the city, not some character named, named Florence. Just want to give her a plug as long as she. And a, a, a lot of people are interested in two authors living together. And I've had a chance to interview a number of authors. And every time I run across it, they say, it's fabulous. We don't compete. We are first readers for each other. Is that the way it works out for you guys? Absolutely it is, yeah, because, um, you know, being an author is, is a really bizarre way to, to earn a living because you're sitting around at home most of the time in your pajamas, wrestling in your head with characters that don't exist, doing things that didn't happen, and um, you get... There are times when it's the most frustrating thing in the world because you can't figure out how to get the strands of your plot to come together, you can't figure out some character's motivation, something like that. And on the surface, you know, it looks like you're not doing anything because, you, you, know, you know, maybe you're lying on the couch, maybe you're sitting in, on a chair, you know, it looks like nothing's happening, but really you're, you're tormented. I've got some really good friends in the UK. Um, one of them, he's a playwright and she is a civil servant. And she, um, I, I met her when we both were working in telecoms. And, um, you know, there'd be days where 
she would come down in the morning and he would be lying on the couch because he hadn't been able to sleep. He was wrestling with some problem with a play he was writing. And she would have to get the kids ready. She'd have to get herself ready. She'd have to feed them. She'd have to take them to school. She'd have to do a whole whole day's work. And she'd have to get the kids and bring them home and give them dinner and bath them and put them in bed and do all the stuff that you have to do as a parent. And all the time he was still lying on the couch and he, she would finish and he'd turn to her and say, oh God, I've had a terrible day today. And she'd be like, yeah, let me tell you about a terrible day. Um, because if you've not experienced it, it's really hard to, to, um, to really understand what's going on. So we understand that, you know, when, if each of us is in that, that problematic time where we're struggling to figure out what's good, what we're going to write next, what the next scene is going to be. Um, you know, we both feel that if you paint yourself into a corner, that's when you do your best writing because you have to, it's not easy, it's not obvious, you have to really work for it. And that can be frustrating. So we understand that. And there are other times as well in the process of writing the book, you feel like you want to talk about it, but you can't really describe it in any meaningful way. You know, you're, you, you're saying you're all excited and you're saying, oh, so there's this guy in this place and he's doing this thing because of this, re you know, you sound ridiculous, but the other person gets it because they know what it's like to be in that, in that stage of, of writing. And, um, you know, as you get towards the end of the book, we, we both find that you just get totally tunnel vision. There's nothing else you can think about. There's nothing else you can do, you know? So when there's a pile of pizza boxes stretching up to the ceiling or, you know, 830 coffee cups in my case, you know, you, we, you know, we get it. We understand that, you know, there's nothing else you can do. You just have to focus on the book until it's finished. So, um, going through the process of working on the book it's hugely hugely beneficial to have um another person who understands it and then the other thing that you mentioned you know being each other's first reader because when you have lived with a book in your head and onto the page for you know getting on to 12 months you're so close to it it's really hard to be objective about you know have you done a decent job this time or you know is this the end of your career you know and of course we're all paranoid so we always assume it's the end of our careers so having somebody else who can objectively read the book who understands that you're not doing someone a favor if you tell them that it's good and when it isn't you know you have to have someone who's going to be honest with you and tell you does it work does it not what could be better? What what's in there that you don't need? You know, somebody who's going to be honest about that because not being honest is actually might seem kind on the surface, but really it isn't. So um, yeah, it's it's hugely beneficial having that other person there that you can trust and rely on to uh, to read your uh, you know the, 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 what you've just finished before you send it into your editor. It's enormous. Yeah, that leads us into the transition about this co-author thing, uh, how it came about. And I just have this vision of you sitting around after a holiday dinner and he turns to you and says, what do you think about taking over the series eventually? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't too un unlike that, honestly. Um, what, what happened was, I mean, it hit me completely out of the blue, it's the only thing, but what had happened was I, um, the last of my... Um, my Paul McGrath janitor books that you kindly mentioned at the beginning there had just come out. And, um, you know, I live in Wyoming now. My, my brother bought a house two doors down from me, which in Wyoming terms means it's three and a half miles away. So he, um, because it, because we're in Southern Wyoming, the launch was going to be at the tattered cover bookstore in Denver. So, um, I asked him if he wanted to come to the launch. He said he would. 
And he said, tell you what, we'll take my car because that way he could he could smoke. So we were we, he drove down and, you know, when you're doing it, it seems like a different world. You know, the idea of driving to a bookstore and doing an in-person event in a room full of people uh, all crushed in together with no masks. I mean, can you can you even imagine that anymore? But, um, you know, when you're heading into one of those things, you know, well, that's again, that's all you can really think about. You're hoping that you're not going to say anything stupid. You're hoping you won't trip over your own feet on the way to the to the stage, all of that stuff. So um, I was really just focused on the event. Luckily, it went off really well. And afterwards, we were driving home. And he, he said, you know, he wanted me to drive home. So I'm driving along in his car. And um, it was horrendous weather. It was January. So, you know, coming out of Colorado into Wyoming in January, at about midnight with um, what we call a ground blizzard had, had, had started up, you know, which is where you've got snow and ice blowing horizontally in front of the car, you know, and, and you can't see anything. You know, we were, he was kind of keeping an eye on the GPS to see if it looked like we were still on the road, you know. And um, I said to him at one point, you know, we've got about a 50-50 chance either of getting either home or in a ditch. I don't know which is going to be. And um, at some point during all of this, he just let slip. He said, so, um, yeah, I'm thinking about retiring. And it turns out later that he did it at that specific time because he knew that I was so engaged with not crashing the car that I wouldn't be able to have a knee-jerk reaction. It was kind of going to sort of filter in a bit more slowly and cause me to think about it a bit more properly. Um, and, of course, you know, he said he wanted to retire. And what a nice brother would have done would have been to say, well, of course you should retire. You deserve it. You've worked incredibly hard for a really long time. You've helped all kinds of people in the industry. You should retire. You should have some time off. You should enjoy, um, you know, the fruits of your labor. But instead, I said, what do you mean retire? What's going to happen to Reacher? Because, you know, I, I was the world's first ever Reacher fan. You know, I read Killing Floor when it was still written in pencil on a yellow notepad, you know. So I, I was so used to the rhythm of every year a new Reacher comes out and you look forward to it and you savor it and you enjoy it. I just thought, well, what, what do you mean retire? What, what will happen to Reacher? So he said, well, I thought you might like to take over writing him. And um, I, was, I was just amazed because you know, he's, he's created this unbelievable worldwide phenomenon. Um, you know, but I, would, I never thought he would trust anybody with it, let alone me. So when he, when he suggested it, I was really taken aback. Then just something in the way that he phrased it, it kind of came across as if, you know, there was a question raised in my mind, you know, would I, could I do it? Would I be up to the job? And the trouble with that is it's like a, it's like a challenge. And I've got myself in so much trouble over the years because I can never walk away from a challenge. So there was the challenge aspect, which, which kind of tipped me 90% of the way towards saying yes. But then the biggest, you know, the clincher was, um, if I didn't do it, then Reacher, the Reacher series would be over. He made that clear. And I thought, you know, I don't want to live in a world where there are no more Jack Reacher books. And I certainly don't want it if it's my fault. So um, I said, yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's give it a try. And um, so initially, um, he, he, he envisaged, I think, a much more clean break. You know, he would, he would stop and I would start and that, that's how it would go. But, um, you know, as we talked to all the different stakeholders, you know, the different publishers and, and, and our agents and everybody, um, the idea emerged that maybe because what we were doing, there was a way in which what we're doing is different to what anyone else has done. You know, a lot of people have t picked up series 
and continued them. But that's nearly always when the author, the original author has died. You know, like people that are writing the Robert Ludlum books, the Steve Larson books, those kind of things. The author, unfortunately, has died. So this time was different. You know, it was Lee's choice to step aside and it's his choice to sort of pass the baton to me. And so we wanted to reassure the readers that this really was continuous. You know, it wasn't going to be some, some you know, jolt some jolt some some you know tripping you know that we wanted them to see that it was going to be very smooth very almost unnoticeable um and that's one reason why um i said okay well i'll, I'll switch to using child as my pen name um and why we decided to do the first few together to show people that you know we are brothers we are very similar um and it's going to be a seamless transition from one to both to me so um that was really the the thinking behind doing the, the transition part so I have to ask, how did you divvy up the writing of the first book that you did together? And did you change it for this one? Uh, well, it's interesting because actually we had to change during the first one because, you know, Lee has this tradition that he always starts the next book on September 1st. And that, you know, that's because he got fired from his previous job on August 31st. So, you know, every year other things can be different, other things can change, but then Reacher has to start on, has to start being written on September 1st. So um, this was September 1st, 2019, when you, before the pandemic, so we started out, he would come over to my house. Um, my office is in the base. It's like a walkout basement. So he could just come over, come straight into my office. We would just hang out. We would talk. We would kick ideas around. We would decide all of the stuff that we wanted to go into the next segment that we were writing. And then we would each write, you know, each write, we would, we would show each other the stuff. Then, you know, we were doing really well up until Christmas time. Then we took a break. We went you know, I went back to England to see some family. He went to do different things. And then when we came back, the pandemic was in full swing. And we felt, you know, we have been potentially been exposed. Fortunately, neither of us did actually catch it. But, you know, we thought we've got to be, we've got to be, um, uh, very careful about this. So we went, we switched from, you know, having established a model that worked, we then switched to one, a completely different one where we work remotely and just e talked on the phone and then emailed stuff back and forth. And actually, we realized we, when as we were going along that it was working much better because you can imagine if you sit down in a room with somebody and you've written something that you're going to show them, you can't help but say, well, this is how it follows on from the previous bit. This is why I think it's a good idea. This is how it's going to connect to the next bit. This is why I think it's important that this, you can't help it. You, you, you inevitably introduce it and preface it and kind of justify it. And then when the other person reads it, all of that's in their mind. They can't help it. So they're not coming to it fresh like a reader would. But then when we switch to just emailing back and forth, you can imagine an, an email arrives, it, all it has is an attachment. You open the attachment and all that has is words on the page. And those words either do the job or they don't. And if they don't, then you have to, um, you have to completely you know, change them because they're not working. And they had to stand on their own, just like they do when someone buys the book and, and reads it. So um, it actually made it a lot stronger. So we, we found that that method worked really well for us um for for the majority of the sentinel um and then when we moved to to better off dead we just thought well we've got a system that works 
it would be crazy to change it. Even though we could by this point get together and hang out together, we thought, no, it, the, the way that it works, just emailing back and forth is so much so much better. We'll, we'll just stick with that. So that's what we've been doing. Okay. I, you know, in long running series on television and whatnot, they have showrunners and they have a Bible which shows kind of all the background of what, is there, is there a Reacher Bible describing all the nuances? Well, in the, I mean, sort of yes and no. I mean, when we decided, you know, there was a period of time when we knew that this was happening, but it hadn't been announced because, you know, the publishers wanted to be in control of that. So what we, what I did was I, I mean, obviously I'd read all the Reacher books, mm -hmm. each one as they came out. So what I did was I went back through them all and um, I put together a, just like a giant spreadsheet really that that has just the pertinent information you know where where was it set who was the who was the main villain who were the who were the sort of you know sidekick villains what cars were used what guns were used you know any military details any family details that were revealed purely to avoid repetition or contradiction you know i didn't want it to be oh you know here's a great idea let's set a book in a small town in georgia you know because you know killing floor margrave you know just so that we didn't cover any ground that had already been covered and um so that i didn't contradict any anything that he'd already put in so um i i did that from for my own benefit and then of course with him being on board with the co-writing um you know he remembers a whole lot more of the of the nuances than mm -hmm. than um i was able to capture in the in that spreadsheet so um anything that I, I'm worried about or anything I'm thinking isn't properly summarized in the in the thing that I did, I can always just ask him about it. So, you know, it's been useful from that point of view. It's broken a few log jams too, if we're sort of at the point where we're thinking, okay, what happens next in the book? Um, there have been times where you know he's had he's recalled something from a previous book that that um, even maybe something that never made it into the final book, something that he had planned to put in or something that had been in and taken out again, that um, helped to just get us from one spot to the next in in the book that we're working on. So um, yeah, it's, it's it's difficult, especially as you say, because you know he wrote twenty four on his own, and that's a lot of material. So um, you know, making sure that we we stay on top of it. And the other thing that's been useful is that the the publishers have been fabulous. They have made a real effort to make sure that when we're at the copy editing stage, they will use copy editors who have already worked on previous Reacher books. So they are you know copy editors are kind of the unsung heroes really because they they have that laser focus they have that eagle eye that makes sure that um any mistakes that, that creep in any any contradictions or repetitions or whatever they will remember and and um and help you to put right so um you know between between the two of us and between the the people that back us up at the publishing house that you know we, we try to avoid those problems and uh you know but it is a it is a big task as you say I have to say that I can't detect, and I've read all the Reacher books, I'll guarantee you as well, where any transition takes place between one one author and the other. So I think you've got it down pretty pat by now. Uh, well, thank you. And you know, that, that, was, that was one of the, the biggest challenges really for me, partly because I'd already written nine books where I went out of my way to avoid sounding like my brother. You know, I, I, was, I, was, I was, you know, totally, 
determined from the beginning that mine would sound different to his. You know, somebody picked one up and they didn't know who had written it. They could tell from the style. So I, I spent all those years deliberately not sounding like him. Which, you know, I think naturally I, my, my natural style is much more like his. So I had to kind of write against style for a long time. And then overnight I had to do a 180 degree turn and, and try to sound like him. And I'm, you know what you just said, Roger. I'm absolutely delighted. That's such it's music to my ears because that is exactly what we were aiming for. And we had a sort of private deal before we 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 started. We said that we would never reveal who had written which part. You know, and um, so far, you know, we're delighted because people don't kind of you know they're not going through with two different colored pencils and marking oh this bit's andrew this bit's lee you know, it's it, it really you know our goal was to make it all sound the same and i'm, I'm happy that that um if it does that's fantastic but we should probably talk a little bit about the better off dead since that's the whole reason for being here uh, and that is this is one of those cases where the terrain almost becomes a character it's set in the southwest in a town that straddles the mexican border a place, the kind of place, and I love this detail, where one tree grows by the side of the road and they call it the tree in caps because it's the only one in the area and it's used as a landmark. That's that's beautiful. Well, well thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I, I love those kind of books where, um, the, the, the you know, sometimes you read a book and it seems like the setting is just kind of coincidental or or even, even irrelevant, whereas this you know we really wanted it to be that the you know that you, you had the feeling of being in that in that little town and you know i think both of us as outsiders you know we, we were both born in the uk and then we moved here um yeah it's the same you know if you guys go over to england you know if you're if you're looking at things through an, an outsider's eye you perhaps see slightly different details sometimes and you see things from a a different perspective so you know we were trying to pick up on all of those little details you know like the tree and um you know combination of um things that you can observe and then things that we read about too because um a lot of the stuff and there's one that's a bit of a spoiler so i won't mention it but a lot of the stuff about the work that the wpa did mm -hmm. in the town you know, we we had to kind of slightly transpose it and, and fictionalize the town because um the real towns that there are um didn't quite work for the way we wanted the story to work, but all of the detail about things that the WPA did and the kind of projects that they undertook uh, are absolutely true. And so, um, you know, it's a combination of observation, how you feel when you're there, and um, some factual research that we did as well. So, you know, all of, when all of that comes together and and produces a, a good a good setting for the book, um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that that's that that's come through on the page. You know, and without committing a spoiler, I want to tease one thing by saying very carefully here. One point, Reacher makes an entrance to a scene in a way that is totally startling and will never be used again, but it is so awesome. I just grinned when I read that section. So there's my tease for the, for the listeners today. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you like, yeah, I mean, it was, that, that was one of the things with this book. It was just really fun to write because, um, you know, we, we had, we were in a groove, we had the way of working established, you know, we'd, we'd already um, completed the Sentinel and uh, knew that we could do it. You know, it, it's always the first time you do something, there's a, always a question in your back of your, back of your mind, you know, can I do this? And so, you know, we'd, we'd done it once, you know, we were confident that we could do it again. And we just had a lot of fun. We really did. And uh, 
Well, as just say one of the things that I really enjoyed about it again was Reacher doesn't go looking for trouble, but he's a trouble magnet and it always finds him and there's pretty much always at least one point because he's ethical in his own way. He says, hey, back away. We don't have to do this. And they sneer and they came at him and they regret it. So, um, and the fact that he has, he even thinks to himself a couple of times, maybe I should just walk away from this whole situation, but he can't because he has this honor in himself and he likes to help people. So it's, it again, it's fun to uh, uh, read, certainly, and I'm glad to hear it's fun to write as well. Absolutely. You know, and you, you really encapsulated Reach's character perfectly there because, you know, yeah, he doesn't, he, he doesn't want, he doesn't, you know, he, he's quite reluctant, really. He, you know, he just wants to be left alone. He wants to lead his life, do, go where he wants to go, do what he wants to do. He doesn't want to be um, getting involved in these situations. But if he sees somebody in trouble, he feels obliged to help them. And um, if he's dealing with a bad guy, he always, uh, you know, coming from his mother in one of the, you know, previous books that Lee wrote, you know, his mother instilled this, this code into him, which was that, you know, you always have to give the guy an opportunity to, to walk away. And if he chooses not to, what happens afterwards is his fault, but you've got to give him the opportunity. So yeah, Reacher always does that. He always, he always stands up for the little guy. And he always gives the big guy the chance to uh, to surrender, but generally the big guy doesn't, and it doesn't work out too well for him. Oh, it def definitely, definitely not. Um, I, I was going to ask uh, if there's anything that we haven't covered. You want to make sure our listeners know today. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation, Roger. I think you've you've really hit all of the all of the notes that I was I was hoping for. I mean, my, my you know what what Lee and I really hope more than anything is that um, if people read Better Off Dead, that um, that they enjoy it, they enjoy reading it as much as we enjoyed writing it. You know, I hope that um, people will like it and will enjoy it and will come back for next year's. Oh, I don't think there's any problem with that. And you've been very generous with your time today, and I really appreciate that. And we should suggest to our listeners, if you enjoyed this interview, you can get signed first edition copy of this or hundreds of other suspense, action, adventure, mystery, and science fiction titles from VJ Books. You will uh, find links to purchase this book and to the author's website in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you so much for being such a good person. Well, thank you, Roger. Thank you very much for your time because it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat with you and uh, really appreciate all the great questions. So thank you very much.